Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights, created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Orstano. I play Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I play Billy Riggins. Our assumption is that you, our listeners, have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, go watch Friday Night Lights, which is currently streaming on Netflix and Peacock TV, because there will be spoilers in our podcast. Hey, guys, we got merch. That's right, baby. So go check out our brand new website at ClearEyesFullHeartsPod.com. That's ClearEyesFullHeartsPod.com. Also, every few weeks, we'll do an audience participation episode just to answer your questions. So email us what you want to know at ClearEyesFullHeartsPod at gmail.com. Today, we're talking about season one, episode nine, Full Hearts. It was written by Aaron Rossin Thomas and directed by Josh Pate. Here's our NBC synopsis. Lila and Tim are alienated as rumors about their relationship spread. Smash puts his health at risk in an attempt to improve his performance on the field. Julie and Matt go on their first date, and the Panthers face the intimidating Gatling high team. We also have another guest with us today, and this is a big one. Brian Smash Williams is here. We're going to talk to Gaius Charles, who played Smash later in this episode, and you're going to love his story. So let's get to our highlights from this episode before we go behind the scenes with Gaius Charles. It's Sunday in Dillon, Texas, and we're baking muffins and we're doing steroids. Huh? All of us. We're all doing steroids and baking muffins. Well, no, Smash is doing the steroids, but Lila's baking the muffins. And then Sammy Mead comes on. He's got some stuff to say about what's going on in town. The whole town has some stuff to say about what's going on. That was was a lot. It was. And uh, I didn't quite realize how racist it was. Until I kind of heard it again. You know, these guys are like, you know how those folks over in Gatlin are. And we do know after this episode that the majority of Gatlin is African-American. The folks at Dillon don't take too kindly to that. And also we learned Smash is from there. So that's his hometown and his childhood rival is on the team. This is correct. His childhood rival, Junior Silvero. Just sounds intimidating. Oh, it's Junior Silverio. I apologize. Yes. And he is intimidating. When you see him later in the episode, you'll realize this is a gigantic man. Just going to hit some highlights about this before we get in with Gaius. Um, Some of my favorite moments. Coach and Tammy are talking about Julie going on a date, and Coach says, at least she's not into Riggins. And like, you know what? Yeah. Hey, that's not a very nice thing to say. Because when he says, I think he says, at least she's not dating one of the Riggins, plural. Oh, so it's both of you. It could have been me or Tim, which is an insult to me and Tim. It's rude. Thanks, Coach. If you you had a daughter like Julie, would you want her dating Tim? Of course not. No, there you go. And I definitely wouldn't want her dating Billy. I I do end up dating Billy. (laughs) Yeah, but at least you're of age. Julie's like, around. What, 16 year. That would have been really weird and I, creepy. Ugh. I do have to say, I think the highlight of this episode, the, the one through line that goes all the way through it is this members only jacket. Yes, I think the standout in this episode, by and large, is the members only jacket, how it plays mm-hmm. and the, the fact that it's brought back so many different times. It is definitely one of my favorite parts of this episode. And there's a lot of good stuff in this episode. So A good, solid Landry Matt scene is my favorite. And them at shopping at the vintage store is 
up there in the top of my favorites. Yeah, those two guys together are literally like just the comic stylings of Landry and Matt. Once again, at the Vintage Store, they crush it every single time. Always fun to watch those two. And then we go back to the high school and we realize that word is kind of, there's a lot of rumors spreading throughout Dylan that uh, something went down with Street and, and Tim. And on top of it, everyone's starting to find out that there may have been some... Uh, some infidelity, as it were, between uh, Tim, Tim and Lila. I'm guessing this stems from the punch, the punch yeah. from Street to Tim, and then that starts to spread. Well, yeah, and then there's school, rumors. The like, why would rumor spread? Yeah, Ooh. why would Street punch Tim? These guys are best friends. The only thing it could possibly be is oh, and little knitting circle starts putting putting two and two together. Basically, the football knitting circle. To be fair, it really is kind of the only thing that would make Street punch Tim at this. point point in time so like listen they're not wrong in their rumors and what they're talking about even even coach at this point knows that something's up he, he pulled matt saracen aside and has a little conversation with him and, and before he even pulls him aside he goes hey how you doing lance which is one of my favorite things on the planet i'm pretty sure kyle improv that he always calls landry lance it's gonna uh, last the whole show <laughs> yeah i i think towards the end Maybe in season five, he starts to remember his name, but I think it's just a brilliant little touch by Kyle Chandler to constantly call him Lance. I love it. It's just one of the many things on this show that just, it's like, yeah, that's perfect. He nails it. Why would he know this kid's name? I love learning a little bit more about the backstories of these characters. And we are starting to hear a bit more about Smash's family at the dinner table and them going to Gatlin. There's a barbecue that they're going to go to and their friends are there. And then Smash just out of nowhere comes up with this line. Did you want us out of Gatlin or away from dad? Yeah. And there, that is such a loaded question. And it makes me, I have like 80 questions spinning off of that question. Yeah. And you can see, I mean, the, the wheels turning in Liz Michael's head when he says that it's like, you better watch it. Oh, I think he does have to leave the table. Yeah. Up until this point, we haven't really had much uh, conversation on the show about what happened to, to Smash's father. I know that there's a mention of it in the pilot that his father passed away, but Smash immediately says, I don't want to talk about that. So we, we really don't know where dad is, and we're going to find out what happened to him in this episode. Speaking of members-only jackets. Oh, yes. This is Matt comes into the house to pick up Julie. Coach, of course, asks, is that a members-only jacket? I mean, Kyle Chandler in this scene, I mean, he's, he really is. He's like a Henny Youngman. He's just crushing him with one-liners. Every five seconds, he's got a one-liner for him. And then, meanwhile, this is another beautiful moment. Julie comes walking down the hall. She looks gorgeous. <laughs> and Coach immediately goes, uh-uh. And he sees her outfit. He's like, that's enough. No, go change. Matt can't take his eyes off Julie the whole entire time. Coach is trying to have a conversation with him. It's really, I mean, it's the comic timing between, between everyone in this scene. It's just totally on point. And then Coach says, why don't you take your members only jacket off and hang it on the coat rack? He goes, what? He goes, hang up your jacket. Hangs up his jacket. He goes, you want a beer? No, I'm driving, says Matt. I mean, this is, it's literally, it's Kyle Chandler just, just nailing one-liners one after the other with this kid. If I was 16 and I came out dressed up and I, and I felt really pretty and then my parents were like, no, and they made me change and like my date saw that happen, I would be mortified. I agree, but she is dressed a little provocatively for a... How old is Julie? Have we established? I think she's 15, 16 years old. I know that she's driven in this episode yeah, or it's established 16. that she has. Yeah, but I know in a later episode, they're teaching her how to drive. So I think we got to yeah. assume that despite... Look, we got to be careful with any kind of age continuity on Friday Night Lights. That's something that you just kind of have to accept going into it as we've discussed before. But I, I mean, look, 
He's trying to protect his daughter. She was dressed a little provocatively, and he's like, uh-uh, no. You're not I'm not it. saying they're wrong. I just no. in, in yes, the, in the place of being a teenage girl, be mortified. Those heels were way too high to wear to a movie theater. <laughs> I will say that right now. That is unnecessary. You're going uh, to a movie. This whole entire scene just, I mean, it's because we've all been through it. I had one when I was in high school. I went to pick a girl up and her father came outside and he goes, those tires look pretty bald. And yeah. I was like, what? And he's like, you're going to be driving my daughter around in that car and your tires look pretty bald. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, just be careful. And I'm like, yes, sir. And I'm backing up and I gave him a little wave and I ran into his mailbox. <gasps> yeah. I mean, it was so embarrassing. Just right along the side of the passenger side of the car. <laughs> oh, no. Knocked it over. And I'm like, I'll, I'll come back and fix that. Sorry, sir. His daughter's in the car next to me. Just like, what's wrong with you? And yeah, obviously that date didn't go well. Oh, uh, and no. speaking of dates that didn't go well. This oh, God, this is like a, a date disaster from, from the get-go. Yeah. He wants to get into this movie, just assumes that when he gets there, they'll have a ticket for him because he's QB1. Like, that in of itself is mortifying. The members-only jacket is mortifying. The changing yeah. of the clothes is mortifying. And oh, then- and remember, now he's trying to act like he's somebody that he's not. You know what I mean? He says, one of my people recommended it. He's trying mm-hmm. to... Landry, I love him to death, but he gives the worst advice on the planet when it comes to dating. Number one, he stuck him in this members only jacket. And he's, he's, he's constantly saying, look, man, no one's going to like you for who you are. So you got to try to be somebody different. And the reality is that's not true. Right. So he said, she's, Julie's not going out with Matt Saracen. She's going out with QB1. And Julie's telling her yeah. friend, no, he's not a football player. He's just Matt Saracen. And it's like, oh, you yeah. two like each other. Just be sweet. Yeah. Just be yourselves. Just, just be yourselves. Be yourselves. It gets better. <laughs> uh, and then there's, I guess. Landry, this is just some like uh, smartness on his part. Got Julie's phone number, called Julie's cell phone. I'm guessing Matt doesn't have a cell phone. I don't know. Called Julie. Julie's like, it's your person on the phone. Landry's freaking out. They have to go back to the house because something is wrong with Grandma Saracen. That's all we have gathered so far. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, poor Matt. He's just trying to have a date with the girl he loves. And it's like everything comes falling apart. And now Julie's going to have to see. The, the one thing that he's embarrassed about, which is the fact that he's got no money, the fact that his grandmother's sick. He doesn't want anyone to know this about him. And uh, he's been putting on this, this front that he's stud quarterback number one and QB one. And now, unfortunately, she's going to have to see the other side of, of Matt Saracen, which he's mortified about. And I do, it is a little sweet that Landry was sort of babysitting is a terrible word for this, but watching Grandma Saracen while yeah. they were on their date, but something must have gone very wrong. Grandma Saracen has locked herself in the closet. I will tell you, I have seen this episode before. I remember specifically sitting at Annie's place in Austin when it came out and we were sobbing at that scene. And then we spent 30 minutes talking about how much we loved Liz Michael. But this scene specifically has stayed in my mind for 15 years now. Yeah, it's one of those scenes on Friday Night Lights that just resonates and they just nail it. I mean, from the acting to the editing to the sound to everything. God, just her in the closet. She's so, so scared. Yeah. Matt knows exactly what to do. He's so sweet. He pretends to be grandpa and then he sings her their song and puts her to bed. Oh God, it's so sweet. Another thing that struck me in rewatching this was the expression that Landry has on his face. He's literally scared to death at this situation. He's never seen anything like this. And, yet, and I think he's realizing for the first time what Matt actually has to go through. But he's got tears in his eyes watching it because it's a lot for a kid to take in. 
know, I think yeah. sometimes we forget that these are these are just high school kids. And the expression on Jesse Plemons' face, who plays Landry, is just like it guts you. Even Julie, when she's explaining the next day what happened on her date with her mom, it's I think they realize how much how lucky they are that their lives are a little bit more simple than Matt's are. No, it puts things in perspective, I think. And then just in the same token of them never being on the same page and Matt thinks the date is a disaster. She saw me sing to my grandmother. That's so embarrassing. And Julie's like, wait, I saw this whole other side of Matt Saracen. And he's really very sweet. And again, just want to smush their faces together so they kiss and get over it. And of course, Landry says the same thing. He's like, that may be the only thing that saved you, you know? (laughs) To be fair. Yeah. And it's true. Thanks, Grandma. Well, but he was being himself. And that, at the end of the day, is what saved him, is the fact that like he wasn't trying to put on some air or trying to pretend to be the superstar quarterback. He was just being Matt Saracen. And we love Matt Saracen. All of us. We do. And then he and Landry talking about it in the, I think it's in the cafeteria the next yeah. day. And Landry says, there's no reason to blame the coach or just because you couldn't pull it off. Uh, He's brilliant line. dead set on that members-only jacket. <laughs> it's a brilliant line. <laughs> we... Then find out, I don't, this, this hit me in a way that I had completely forgotten about the nickname smash, which by the way, Brian has told us before that he gave himself actually comes from his dad when he crashed his bike into a wall. Yeah. And I think honestly, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong in this, originally the character's name was Crash. Or maybe I just, I know when we were doing the pilot, I said Crash and Pete goes, no, his name is Smash now. Or maybe he just said, maybe maybe I just misread it, but I thought that it was Crash Williams. Um, uh, so he's working out with his sister, Sheila, played by Whitney McCauley, who I I have always, I have always loved. She's so, so good in this. Yeah, she's and great. She, you can tell she knows something's up with her brother. And she's asking very pointed and very specific questions about like, did your skin break out before and stuff? She, yeah. She she knows things. She knows something's up and she knows he's up to no good. They just go to the, they go to the doctor, check him out. He's fine. And doctor is the same as everybody else in Adele. And that's like, please crush them when you play Scotland this weekend. Yeah. It, I mean, it, the whole town revolves around football. We know this, obviously. Speaking of up to no good, the next scene that we have, or one of the next scenes that we have is Tim pulls up into the into the driveway. And who should be there but a host of angry Dylan Panthers. Angry Dylan Panthers with uh, baseball because- bats. I definitely yeah. thought they were going to pull him out of the truck and and beat him up. I did too when I first watched that scene. But yeah, I mean, they, it's basically these guys, they know at this point that Tim and Lila were having a, a little fling and uh, they're none too happy about it. He got offensive linemen basically protecting their quarterback, which is what happens. Do you know what? I uh, guess it's on and smart on a couple of reasons because that truck is his baby and they hurt the thing that would hurt him the most. Yeah. And they also can't hurt their one of their star players because they need him for the game. So listen, good on you guys. That was like, now that I think about it, that was some smart baseball thinking. Yeah, but it it doesn't bode well. I mean, you got a major game against Gatlin coming up and the team is kind of divided now. Well, not divided. I guess everyone's (laughs) together in the fact that they're pissed off at Tim. This game, the girls in the stands start yelling at Lila and they're throwing things at her while she's cheering and she's finally had enough and she runs under the bleachers. Buddy gets up and leaves the game and goes down to take care of his daughter. He says to her, it's only a game. I was Mm. like, Brad Leland, knocking it out of the park there. Totally. It, It goes back to the thing that we've said over and over and over again already on this podcast, which is the fact that this is a show where we have three dimensional characters. Up until this point, 
all we can see, all we've seen of Buddy Garrity is that Buddy Garrity is this the booster. He's the car dealership guy. He wants to win. He, he'll win at any cost. Mm-hmm. He's And now you see that there's another side to this guy. And the reality is he loves his daughter and he loves his daughter more than football. And up until this point, I don't know that we could have said I, that we believe that I would that not have true. said that until that moment. No. I mean, he left the game. And she even says that. You left the game. And he goes, it's only a game. You're my daughter. Ugh. It's a beautiful scene played brilliantly by both Minka and, and Brad Leland. So, so sweet. Yeah. I had a conversation with Brad Leland the other day, and he was listening to our podcast, and he said he did not think that my buddy Garrity was on point. And that was, he was listening to the first episode of the podcast. So It has Stacey, gotten better since episode one, though. I told, he goes, hey, man, I, I got a problem. <laughs> I got a problem with your buddy Garrity. He goes, it used to be good, Derek, but right now it does not sound like me. That's not what I sound like. It's back, though. And I don't know, guys, I think, is it back, back. Stacy? Okay. You just All needed right. to watch a couple episodes is the thing. It comes and goes. I need to talk to Brad more. Poor Brad. I... It, it only <laughs> comes from love. I need to call him and just listen to his voice. He's like, hey, man, why are you calling me? What's going on? What, what's new with you? Oh, what's new? Nothing, Brad. I just wanted to hear your voice so I can do my impression. You know your face changes when podcast. you do it too, right? It's, the, it, it's, <laughs> a, it's a quizzical, the, the eyes squint, there's a quizzical in the face. Brad and I actually had a conversation because he, Brad is great at doing uh, Texas impressions, basically. Like, Brad can do, like, every reason. And then he tells you the reason why they all sound the way they do. It's like a fascinating monologue. He's like, in West Texas, they got to talk like this with their mouth closed because there's dirt flying Mm -hmm. through the air and it'll hit you. You know, and I I don't, I can't do regional, regional Texas dialects the way that Brad can, but he can go through every regional Texas dialect. And he just nails it. Next time we have him on the show, we'll have to ask him to I do that. I was thinking about that the But other enough day. with, enough Buddy Garrity, Bradley. Moving Leland. on. I do have to tell you, the, the game, the fact that they gave Smash the, the winning TD, like the winning, the game, I, I got goosebumps. I was excited yeah. for the team. I cheered for football. Especially after the, uh, the last time we saw Smash play, I, I think, was the, the homecoming mm-hmm. game where he, he did not have a good game. So to see him performing, even though it's performing really well because he's on steroids, uh, is great. Nonetheless, he's still on steroids, and that might be <laughs> he's doing so well. But another, another cool thing that happened in this episode, I thought, is that, yes, Smash does score the winning touchdown, but Riggins throws the lead block on Junior Silverio, the talented the, uh, Gatling the giant linebacker. And he does this after he's been injured. And because of the fact that he came back into the game after his injury, the team forgives him. It's like everything's, it's like all water under the bridge. But we'll see in the next episode that it's not going to work that smoothly for Lila. And that episode is called It's Different for Girls. Because I thought, it's different for girls. Yeah, it is different for girls, 100%. Riggins is forgiven. They beat the crap out of his car and it's, it's over with. I think women have a tendency to deal with that kind of stuff a little bit differently. And we're going to see it in, in the next episode. I mean, it, it's Are you saying that maybe awful. instead we should just get baseball bats and go beat up cars? <sighs> uh, <laughs> well, frankly, if, if I had the option of do I want to be tortured in high school every single day for the rest of the year or somebody come over and beat the crap out of my mm-hmm. car and it's over 24 hours later, I'll take the baseball bat to the car any day I'm of the week. You. I mean, this next episode is really, really hard to watch. Uh, I haven't seen uh, it. An now I'm job. now I'm all gonna get remembrance of Mean Girls in high school. I'm just I'm just saying I was shocked at myself for being as invested in the football game as I was. I got goosebumps, and a lot of it has to do with the gorgeous music they always put under the scoring of it. But and then he runs up and like he doesn't even need to celebrate 
with his team. He runs up in the stands and just finds his mom and he's like, let's go home. And you know who else finds somebody? Matt Saracen finds Julie and they have their first kiss. It's so cute and so sweet. This this is a good episode. Solid episode all the way around. That made me very happy. And we learn a ton about Smash. And we've got our special guest, Guys Charles, up right now. And we're going to learn even more about Smash. So please stick around, guys. It's going to be interesting. everybody, we're back with the multi-talented Gaius Charles, who plays Brian Smash Williams. Our listeners will also know Gaius from his television roles on such shows as Taken, God Friended Me, NCIS, Drunk History, Roswell, New Mexico, Aquarius, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Blind Spot, Law & Order, SVU, Necessary Roughness, and of course, as Dr. Shane Ross on the groundbreaking and iconic ABC drama, Grey's Anatomy. Gaius has also starred in multiple films, including Salt opposite Angelina Jolie and the Academy Award-winning film The Messenger, starring Ben Foster and Woody Harrelson. Gaius, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for being here. We are excited to have What's you. What's up, man? Great to be here. That intro, I was, I was kind of feeling myself for a second with that intro. <laughs> I, might, I almost had to take a sip of water there because there's a few Thanks, credits. Man. So tell us about how Friday Night Lights happened for you, fell into your lap. Well, it's really it's a long story. Uh, really, a, there's a there's a whole testimony behind it. But um, I was just auditioning for a bunch of stuff. I just graduated from college and I was auditioning for a bunch of stuff in New York. Can I jump in real quick and tell the audience where you went to school? It is very special. Because I think this is kind sure. of important. Like Gaius graduated from Carnegie Mellon, which for those of you who don't know, is literally like one of the top five theater programs in the country every single year for undergraduate theater programs. So just to give you a little reference as to Gaius's Appreciate background. you, man. Yeah, so I was doing the, you know, the hustle. Y- y'all, y'all know the hustle. Yep. When you graduate school, you're auditioning, you're in New York, you're in L.A., and I get this, this script and this email like, yeah, the show Friday Night Lights and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, ah, football show, didn't really play football. All right, you know, I'll give it a crack. And uh, long story short, I, I just felt like like this was for me, and I went to because this is back in the day see i don't even know how they do it now <laughs> but back in the day they used to like bring in their top pick from new york and then their la people and they'd fly the new york pick out to la to audition everybody to test with everybody and um i remember before leaving for new york i just felt like really like god was saying this was this was my role this was the role he had for me and i just went forward with that faith auditioned and within like three days headed to Austin to work on this this show called Friday Night Lights. Holy, that's so fast. Yeah, were you in New York yeah. when you auditioned or LA when you auditioned? I, I was in New York when I taped. So I went to 30 Rock, taped at 30 Rock. And then, you know, it's funny because when I taped, you know, and it's the whole the whole game of, of doing, and back then it was a tape just with the casting director in the room. And I remember, I don't know why I said this, but I remember like saying like, hey, Pete, you look for me, baby. You look for me, Pete. And I remember he was he said to me later, he was like, you know, because they when you're the execs and the producers, they're just watching tape all day, all day, yeah. you know. And so I remember he said when he heard that, he looked up and like actually like really watched my tape. And that was one of the things that helped push it forward. So yeah, I read, crazy, I, is crazy. this is this true? Did you have to go to the emergency room like right before your audition? I did. So I I was like getting into football mode. Cause I was like, all right, you know, play. I did track and school. I didn't do play football. So I'm like, okay, I'm a, I'm gonna go running. I'm gonna go lift some weights, whatever. And like the night before 
I went running and just kind of tweaked my ankle. And I was like, dang. And so they rescheduled it and everything. And, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal, but it was just like, it was one of those things that just kind of helped me take it serious. Like, like maybe there's something to this thing. Cause, cause it seems like, it seems like there's some things that are just pointing to me taking this seriously. And so I did. And then the show happened. I love that. It's like the world sort of tells you to slow down and you can like really study your sides and think about what you're going to do. Exactly. Exactly. Because when you're auditioning right out of school, you're literally getting, it's funny, I was, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, but you're literally getting like, like five and six auditions sometimes. You know, this is back in the day, pre-pandemic, obviously, but where you would literally like, you would go to New York and you'd have like, four or five auditions in one day. So you'd get on the bus or the train at like 7 a.m., 8 a.m., and you'd be in the city all day running around town. Changing clothes in bathrooms. Changing clothes. That hustle, you know, that New York hustle. And then sometimes it's like you're getting you're getting emails. Or This was like really actually before even real big smartphones. So you're getting a call like, hey, just go to this office. They got the side. Just the hustle of it. And um yeah, that's what I came up in. And uh, that's that's one of the things that helped, like I said, accelerate. I remember process. when I was living in New York, it was like 98 when I first got out there and I got a cell phone. And I was one of the first people I knew that, that wasn't like a doctor or a drug dealer that yeah. had a cell phone. Right. And everybody right. thought, they were like, what do you do? What are you, drug dealer? And I'm like, no, man, I'm an actor. Yeah. And they're like, why don't you just have a, a call service? A call service. Right. When I started in this business, you had to like literally walk over to a Oh, yeah, because you had a pager. And yes. service and give you messages. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. And that's how old yes. school I am. Yes, yes, yes. I also had fax machines. Yeah. yeah. And like when you wanted to read a script, you had to go to your agent's office to actually check the script out because there wasn't like, wow. they weren't emailing scripts. I don't remember the fax machine, but I remember like if you wanted a script, like you would get a FedEx package like yeah. the next day. Wasn't just, that like, amazing? Sometimes like, you would just like open your door and you'd have a script there. And you're like, like a <gasps> stack of FedEx packages. Like what is, yeah. yeah. And the yeah. new, guys, every, um, to our listeners, every time they like rewrite a script, they change it to a new color. So it's like, here's your blue script. Here's your goldenrod script mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And you're like, ooh, a new yeah. color script just arrived mm-hmm. at my door. Goldenrod's the only mm-hmm. color I, I ever remember. I don't know Because it sounds so fancy. Okay, so what what did you know about Brian going into the pilot? I didn't really know a lot because, you know, the whole the process of of doing the pilot is really to get those like kind of broad brush strokes, yeah. you know. And uh, I just remember like one of the things I, I look back at, at and I just go, wow, is how collaborative the experience was, especially after spending some time in the business and just kind of seeing how the experience is often not like that, you know, when you're starting out and just getting going. And for people to just be welcoming of you ad-libbing and bringing in new ideas and just really owning your character and directing your character and off, like, you know, I would send an email to Jason Kadams about something and like, you would actually see he he integrated or incorporated what you were talking about in that conversation in the next script or in the current script. It was just unbelievable, you know, and then to be doing that at, at like 22, 23, again, it's like... Who are these guys? Like they're just they're they're really owning the show. They're owning these characters, and that was one of the reasons why we could do yeah, that. It, it, I mean, it was just a total lack of ego. It felt like for everybody involved, everyone put their ego. So much high. faith and trust put in in you guys, especially the the like the ones that were playing the high school kids. It's a lot of faith and trust to put in people. But sure. again, a testament to Pete Berg and and Linda Lowy and everyone who cast this show that you guys just mesh and fit, and everything just works. Sure. What was your initial take on the pilot when you read it? That's a good question. I just, it's funny because I, I remember people saying like, this, the show is going to be like, this is going to be really big. This is going to be, and I was just like, okay, cool. You know, I was like, it's just, okay, great. But as again, as a 22 year old, 23 year old, like 
just getting out of school, you're just along for the ride. Like you don't really know what you're, you're, you're just learning what you're doing. You're just learning how this business yeah. works. I remember- Like on um, paper, I didn't think the script was like spectacular. You know what I mean? But I do remember, like, I, I love the movie first and foremost, and I love yeah. the book Friday Night Lights. Yeah. But I remember like getting the script and being like, oh, it's basically just kind of the movie with some different named characters. Hmm. And then, but so my next question was gonna be like, okay, so there was that process. Then there was the actual shooting process where I was like, okay, right. wait a minute. This is different. Like yeah. some of the stuff yeah. that like some of the dialogue that may have been a little, a little stilted on paper suddenly like jumped off the page when you got in there and started working on it because Pete allowed right. us to improv stuff. Yeah. And shoots and yeah. shoots things yeah. at you in the moment. Yeah. But I think that's, you know, like to your point, that's what kind of kept it so organic and, and authentic. And not having to worry so much about hitting this mark or doing it this way, or even sometimes having to match continuity, like all that kind of stuff. And like, those just weren't big issues. It was just like, just live in this world, breathe these characters into life and do your thing and enjoy it. That was just, um, was like just even awesome. at the dealership, your little, your rap that you did, like, was that? Scripted? So that was scripted in the pilot. Yeah. But from that point on, like I got to kind of ad lib those moments because, you know, they like you. They're like, oh, we like this. OK. And so like in the next few episodes, like, OK, there's a there's another dealership scene. Guys, you know, give us some smash, you know, and I'll get up there. Because I don't know so if, cool. if people know how difficult it is to just do something like that. Like you've got a whole group of people out there. Yeah. In the moment, it can be a little daunting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just about like really, like I said, just owning it, just owning it. And, and, and that helps you to be just free with it. Yeah. So 100%. This is, this is specific, but you were saying that you ran track in high school and I just wonder what it is like, because obviously I never played football either, but putting pads and a uniform and a helmet on for the first time, did it feel awkward or were you like, no, I can live in this. I can do this. Yeah. It, at first, honestly, it does feel awkward because when you're used to just like, they're like, okay, we need you to run at top speed. I'm like, oh, I can run if you take some I know, of stuff. I'm wearing so many things. <laughs> I'm wearing a lot of stuff here. But then over time, you got you, you get used to it. And it's funny because even as I was uh, watching the episode that, you know, I think we're going to talk about just to kind of prep the conversation, um, I just remembered like what it was like to to be in the locker room and, you know, every episode had some football element to it. And as the process, you know, as we got further and further along in the seasons, it just felt like everything just gelled more and you just get more comfortable doing it and you know what you're doing. And again, you just, you just step into it more and own it that much more. Okay. I think one of the things that makes it the most fantastic, you and Liz Michael, who played your mom. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It seemed, it just, I just watched, um, so episode nine as well. And there's just, it's, it's so lived in your relationship and it does seem like 17 years of this incredibly maternal mother-son thing did that just happen did you guys work on yeah, it i don't yeah i don't know it was very organic very like it just it just boom it just came together like we met we chatted it up and i don't know but we just had a connection i don't even know how to explain it but then i was watching the episode and i was like man how did they find so many of the adult actors that that played the parents that look so much like the kids like the actress who plays minka's characters mom you, you know like i'm like dang she really kind of looks like me or like i'm looking at liz i'm like dang me and liz kind of <laughs> kind of do have a resemblance you know what i mean so it just it just it all just came together. And but, Liz is just such um, a firecracker, man. I mean, even in her first scene yeah, yeah. When, when you're on the on the couch, uh, 
getting it on with Tyra. Yeah, getting it in. Yeah, oh, man. But you know what, too? It's like Liz has like just so, I mean, she comes from that steep theater background. Mm-hmm. She's a singer and everything. So it's like when you have that trust there, you're able to ad lib and improvise and go out on a limb with people creatively that is much more difficult to do if you don't have that trust and that rapport. And we were able to build that really early. So that was definitely- That's such a good word about it. It's trust. And when that happens immediately, it just, oh, it feels so lived in. And I also like, I will never stop speaking about my love for Liz Michael. I've known her since I was like probably 19 or 20. Oh, she is. Oh, wow. She is. Amazing. This is something that Stacey had talked about in our pilot episode of our of our podcast here, that you are one of the few characters, or not few characters, but like you are the most different probably of any of the characters of anybody on the show. Yeah, compared to like from Gaius life. to Smash, I find you to be the the most different in character. What parts of Smash <laughs> do you think are you? All of parts of Smash are me. You know, it's so funny. It's like, I get this, I get this a lot and I've thought about it a lot. And I've really, I think the best way to explain it is that Smash is the part of me that I am not allowed to be as a, as a black man in this world. You know what I'm saying? Like if I act, if I let that side of me go, not to get too deep, but I I would be a hashtag. You know what I mean? That swagger, that bombast, that, that, that arrogance that like in your face that you know and so i think just culturally just to be real it's like as a as a black man you have to particularly in this culture you know you have to learn how to kind of pick your moments and 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 control your emotions and and all that kind of stuff to negotiate your way in this world and in this culture and so one of the things that was so i watched you know i watched the episode man like i was really i was on one you know i was like <laughs> I was going in, you know, but it just, it was very freeing for me personally and creatively because I was allowed to express that, that kind of power and that kind of, you know, that audacity and that kind of um, strength without having to worry that I was going to put myself in a compromise or dangerous place. Oh, I didn't mean to get that deep here. I do. <laughs> but no, thank you so much for sharing that, dude, because that's, no worries, man. you know, it's just something that I don't, I don't I think, think about yeah, being yeah, that no worries, a high schooler with that much confidence. I went to a giant high school in Texas and I can't, I don't even know if I can think of any of the guys that were there that had that kind of confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also like when you get to go back to high school, like after actually having like any of us actually having been through high school, you just realize like all your little insecurities or whatever, like it's just doesn't matter. Like you just like you can you it's almost like you get another chance to like live out the confidence. You know what I'm saying? So like all all the sort of quirks and issues and stuff that we go through in high school, it's like, oh, I can actually sort of get a get another take at this and and really live out my full confidence. So I think that that's something that we can all relate to. I was, I never got to play a high school. <laughs> so it must've been nice. <laughs> so one of the big stories on the show, especially in the beginning is your kind of uh, antagonistic relationship with uh, Taylor Kitsch, AKA Tim Riggins. Yeah. Which is so funny. Cause like me and Taylor are so cool. Like I love that dude so much. It's I think ridiculous. that's why it works so much when you guys act like you don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Taylor and I used to joke all the time because would you tell the audience where your bedroom is in Friday Night Lights? Yeah, it was in the Riggins house. Yeah, yeah. Trumpet, is oh, that true? Yes. Right. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Yeah, yeah, so we always used to joke. It's like, guys don't get along, and yet he's been staying in our house all like, this time. Smash has you know? been here for like five years in our house. Yeah. I did not know that. But, but, but they actually used two locations, because there was another location that they used for the bedroom scene, because the actual location where we shot in the house 
was so small, like it was public housing. It was so small that we had to kind of like restage things in other places. But yeah, one of the locations we used for the bedroom was was the Riggins house. That's very <laughs> definitely. I didn't remember that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. talk to you about the trajectory of this story and that Smash was going to start with steroid use? I think I just read the script and found out about it. And it's funny because I remember we had a good rapport with our stunt team and a lot of the guys on our stunt team had played various levels of professional football. And they were like, they were like, they're going to have you use steroids. They're like, oh man, come on. Oh man. You know, because it's like, typically they say, at least what, what they told me then, is like typically it's not the black athletes that use steroids. Typically, it's usually like white athletes who use steroids, typically speaking. just I'm just saying what they told me, y'all. And But I actually thought it was like a cool storyline because, again, it showed how far this guy was willing to go to achieve this dream. And yeah, I kind of like turning that stereotype on the head. Like, actually, if you're pushed far enough, it, it really doesn't matter what the sort of convention is like this this young kid could cross this line and we kind of saw what happened when he did yeah that was that that whole storyline was just so intense yeah Uh, yeah the the thing that strikes me the most is that i can't remember i think it was at the start of episode nine where you're in the church and liz has gotten the church to give you money the church money oh god you're taking church church money money. to go do steroids come on smash Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, that that one is a real, that one really pulls at the heartstrings. That one's really tough. But again, it's like, that was the genius of the writing, the acting, the everything. It's just like, just your heart goes out because you see this kid's need, but you also see just how messed up this thing is. And it's, he can't really say that he's doing this thing and he has to put on this front. And it's just like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Even I, you know, like I said, I watched it and I was like, oh gosh, I, Church money. You're oh, like, no, Lord. Brian, no. No, Brian, come on, man. But your expression, your expression in that scene, guys, when th- that offering plate starts going around, it, I mean, it's like a deer in headlights, but it's I just a it. brilliant scene because as an yeah. audience, you take us there. We are right. 100% feeling the guilt that Smash is feeling in that moment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's one of the things I think this show does so well. It, there are so many times where characters are doing immoral things. Uh, right. But with a moral gain, the objective is, look, man, right. you're trying to help your mom. You're trying to make sure that your sisters are taken care of and that your family's taken care of. And this is the best way you know how to do it. So sure, we constantly see these characters kind of stumbling along the way. But man, yeah, that that one scene just it always get, gets me every single time I watched it. And I, that's a testament to you as an actor. Oh, thanks. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because when I was rewatching it, I rem- I was remembering the filming process. Like I remembered when we were doing the vial and the steroids in the car. And I remember, I think it was, who directed that one? Was it Josh? I could, uh, episode Josh. nine? Yeah, I think it was either Josh or, I think it was Josh. But yeah, like I just remember like, cause they, they hand you the props like five seconds before you roll, right? And I'm just trying to look like I know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? And <laughs> like, what? They're like, no, hold it like this. No, hold it. No, no. And so, you know, we figure it out and everything. And then, you know, calling out to some all... grip. Hey, who's done yeah, steroids? Yeah, anybody here? Anybody right. done steroids? <laughs> hey, who's juicing over here? Come, come tell me uh, how to do this. But, uh, but just seeing how it all cut together and everything, I was like, oh man, this is, this is real right when, here. Speaking yeah, of, when yeah. was the last time did you watch the show when it was on or have you done like a rewatch since 
15 years ago. I have not. I have not. You know, it's funny, like the episode, episode nine, I haven't seen episode nine in over 10 years. You know what I'm saying? And I, what I, what I tell people is just like, just honestly, like when I watch the show, it's often like I'm there again. Mm -hmm. Like I'm feeling all the feelings that I felt again, like it's intense. So I try not to watch it too much just because it's it's heavy. Uh, we're already in a heavy place, but I am so grateful for all the people who have discovered it for the first time, even, you know, now I think it's back on Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. And so you have people who are discovering a show that we did 15, 16 years, about 15, 15 years, years ago, ago, that still is, a, is, is somebody said it ages so well. Yeah. You it know, is it's timeless. Classic. Okay, this is a very selfish question from my end, but I know that you've done quite a bit of theater and I'm wondering if it's something that you still would want to do if it, if it, if it came to you? It's so funny because I've been getting back into Shakespeare. Just, I love, love. Do you like Shakespeare? Yeah, I I studied classical theater in London. That's what I thought it's going to do. Oh, awesome. So, you know, so you already know. Yeah. Like just over this pandemic, like I've had a lot of downtime, like we've all had, and I've been getting uh, just back into Shakespeare, like reading stuff and, Mm -hmm. you know, going back to some anthologies and, John Barton from RSC has a great series called Playing Shakespeare. And I've just been watching that. And I was just like, I just love the classics. So I think, I think there is a there is a desire to get back to some of that. I don't know what capacity. We're all kind of seeing what we can do theater-wise. I know Broadway just kind of reopened. I don't know how it's going. It's slow but open. We're good. We're doing good. <laughs> slow open. Yeah. But at some point, yeah, because I I do, you know, the actors that I that I really respect, like the consummate actors, actresses, like. They, they do it all. Like yeah. they do their film, their television shows, and then they'll turn around and do a theater piece. It's just like, how are they? Because the, the sort of the, the thinking is that, oh, well, once you do film and television, like you're just done with theater. But I think that the real sort of consummate artists, uh, actors, actresses, they, they kind of keep that in them because they know it's like the weight training of theater, how much that strengthens those strengthen those creative muscles. I say selfishly because I'm desperate to see you on stage. I would love to see you on stage. Oh man, you're so so kind. Stacy and I were talking about this earlier. We know that you did a production of Othello a few years back right. with yeah. uh, John Ortiz and, mm-hmm. and Labyrinth Theater Company and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Would you mind talking just a little bit about what that experience was like? I mean, because Philip Seymour Hoffman was my all-time favorite. And yeah, well, we did the show and the show started off, we, we sort of put it up in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys were just like, so just amazing. Like, so they would take, they took the show, they put it up in Germany, then they brought it back to New York. And I'll tell you a story. So when, when they brought the show back to New York, you know, when you're, when you're doing equity shows, you have to have a deputy, like a cast member who, and you were probably the youngest guy in the, the cast. The youngest so one you got always gets to be. Yeah. yeah. It's like the youngest guy in the cast. Right, a passage. And no, right. Yeah. But nobody wants to be the no, deputy. No, it's you, like, you know, <laughs> like nobody wants to be the deputy. Guys, you get like a tiny bit more in your paycheck, but it's so not worth it because it's terrible work. And you, you're like, you're like the, the rep on stage, you know what I mean? Or on the, in the production. And so if there's any issue, the stage manager, whoever it is, has to come to you. And then you have to like deal with it with the cast. You're basically the liaison between the cast and the union. Like, so you're. Which is actors equity is the union for stage actors. So you have to let the union know if you went overtime in rehearsals. Like you're the one who has to do so all that. much paperwork. <laughs> and you're like, I just want to play my part. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like 
20 something. Like, I don't <laughs> they always you know, screw the young guy. Like, yeah. How did I get to be? But the funny story is so there was one issue that came up with the late, great Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who just was so kind, so generous. I mean, I can't even, I mean, every day I watched him work, it was just like masterclass, like just taking notes and just like, just awe, just awe-inspiring, just an absolute Olympian on the stage. But there was this one moment where one thing that you're not, you weren't, we weren't supposed to do was smoke in our dressing rooms, right? And so (laughs) I think it was the stage manager who came to me like, Gaius, Phil is just having a couple of cigarettes in his, his dressing room. Can you go and and I'm like, uh, you gotta I'm go like, rat well, out first of all, first of all, right? Like I'm gonna go check him. Like first of all, he's my <laughs> boss. Number one, like he's producing this whole thing. Second of all, he's like one of the greatest actors on earth. Third of all, like I want him to like me. You know, <laughs> oh, that's and brutal. So, and so I had to go and be like, hey, uh, Phil. Um, you know, the stage manager, um, like, it's not, it's not me, you know what I'm saying? But uh, they're, they're just saying that. He's like, okay, I got it. Don't worry, I got it. I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so that was the one story I was just like, oh, man. But he was always just the kindest, most generous, most gracious person. I mean, you literally would walk past him and not even recognize, recognize it was him because he was just so humble and so, so kind. Yeah. I got to see him in a production of True West in New York. Him and John C. Riley, where they would switch parts wow. every night. Wow. And that's, you know... True West is a part that's kind of written for a guy like me. Like I could play that with my eyes closed. And I, and I, sure. I was very familiar with the show and uh, I got to see him perform it with John C. Riley. And I remember at intermission coming out with a group of actors and going, I can't do what he's Mm-mm. doing. Nobody can. And it was, there were like eight of us standing there and it was, and we were all actors and it was really demoralizing. I understand. Uh, I, will never I thought of myself as being, yeah. And, and it was a part that I know and a part that I can play. And I'm sitting here going, I can't do that. Just in awe, just in awe. Yeah. And it's funny because I actually remember him saying like, he was, he really, he liked the show because he watched the show. He watched Friday Night Live. And I remember him really complimenting Jesse. Jesse Plemons, he really liked Jesse's character. I thought you were going to um, say me. And that, yes, I it's weird that you didn't say Billy Riggins there. Uh, yeah, I don't know what he thought about Billy Riggins, but he really liked, he really liked Jesse Plemons' character. He loved, he loved Jesse's work. I get that, too. A lot of people, call, like have, a lot of critics called Jesse like a younger Philip Seymour Hoffman with his career. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but from what I got from just a quick little combo we had one time in, in Germany, he was just like, yeah, Jesse. I was like, I think he really liked his work. Thank you so much for sharing that story, man. Hey, did you have a favorite, like a favorite moment from Friday Night Lights? Either like an like on set moment or a favorite scene? Oh gosh, there's just so many. I, I know just, this is literally the toughest question. I know. I think. I mean, just as you asked that, one thing that stood out to me was the mud. Uh, was it the mud bowl? No, it was wind sprints. Mud bowl was one thing, but wind sprints, like running the wind sprints in the mud. Wait, and did you like, guys? How much did you guys really have to run for wind sprints? We really ran that. You know, that Ooh. wasn't double, you know, because anything that was in pads and stuff, obviously we had doubles. We had to do stunts, insurance, all that kind of stuff, get it done. But uh, anything without pads, we pretty much had to had to do that stuff. So I remember just running in that mud and just getting all primal. Oh, and that's the one where you start the clear eyes, full hearts with the whole team. Oh, so good. So, yes, so good. Exactly. Yeah. We were talking about that the other day because there's that moment where you'd been talking smack. You'd done an interview and that's kind of what sets co- coach off and yeah. leads to the wind sprints. And yeah, you're sitting yeah. there eating a bowl of cereal in your house, just minding <laughs> your own business, having, 
<laughs> yeah. There's a knock at the door and it's coach and your eyes, when you see it's coach, it's like you got like a little dribble of milk coming no. out. It's brilliant. Yeah. Such a great <laughs> moment. Cause it's like, you're like, no, Annie, answer the door. And she's not answering it. And then when she does, mm -hmm. so just to talk more about Smash in general, like what did you know about your dad? Cause we know in the pilot, you say, I don't talk about that. And then we find out in episode nine, what exactly happened with your father? What, what did you know going into those episodes? I mean, did you know anything in episode three or I, four? I really, I, I really don't think that I did. I just remember they wanted to differentiate my character from the character in the book and the movie. And so I remember at mm -hmm. first, I think one of the early drafts, actually, I think this, one in the early draft, I wasn't Smash. I was, I was Bomber. Bomber was the name of the character in the like one of the early. That does you are Smash like there, there's no other. <laughs> I'm so glad it changed. Thank you. Smash. Yeah, but I so I remember that, and then I remember I think early on, I think if I'm remembering clearly or correctly, that there was something like with like my granddad, like me and my granddad had, or like grandparent were like sort of like that was the family connection, and then I think I think again if I'm remembering correctly that they changed it to my mom and stuff like that, and then they kind of built out this whole storyline with the with the father thing, which I just think I think is so interesting, right? Because for various reasons, um, that single family uh, story, that absent father story, is a very common story, particularly for a lot of black men, you know, young black men, and so I thought that was a really spot on direction to go. And uh, yeah, I didn't really know much about it, but just, we just saw what came down and, and it just, it worked. We went with it. Guys, uh, one last question for you, man. What would you say Friday Night Lights means to you in, in the broadest sense and a personal sense? What was that experience like for you and, and how have you uh, moved on with, what's your life been like going forward? It has been one of the greatest moments experiences opportunities of my life period it has it's something that put me on the map in terms of my career it's something like we've talked about that is just classic it's something that i and i'm sure just about everybody who's worked on it is just extremely extremely proud of and uh it, it's just a tremendous honor to have been able to help tell this story and for it to have so much relevance and resonance in the culture so yeah i mean that's that's what it that's what it means to me and uh that's why i even like coming on Shows like this and things like this. We've done all kind of all kinds of projects over the years, from the ATX TV Festival to get out mm -hmm. the vote campaigns to whatever, because it just feels like we have this special community that just lives on because of this uh, amazing work we've all done. So it's an honor, a privilege, and certainly a tremendous blessing. I do. I don't think I could have said it. I could never have said it that well. That's that's the universal feeling from all of us. But that's so perfect. I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> Um, guys, I just want to thank you so much for coming and, and playing with us on our on our little on our little podcast. Yeah, man, it's always great seeing you, bud. Thank you so much for being on here. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a real joy. Thank you, guys. That is it for episode nine. But please join us next time for episode ten when we'll have another special guest. This is Catherine Willis. You might know me as Mama Street. That is right. We've got Catherine Willis, aka Street's mom, in the house. So until then. Your eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose.
Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mandy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to clearEyesFullHeartsPod at gmail.com. Find us on social media. I'm Stacey Oristano on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Derek Phillips on Twitter and underscore Derek Phillips on Instagram. And check out our websites, ClearEyesFullHeartsPod.com, Cadence13.com, and BlackBarrelMedia.com. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week.